Anybody here ever been to the Grand Canyon before? A few, oh God, well, about half the people. So it's like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking out of the vast expanse and seeing the grandeur and the majesty and the beauty and it's just daunting. It makes you feel so small. And then trying to explain it with words. You really can't. You can't explain it with words. And that's how I feel as we're approaching Romans 9. It's such a huge, grand passage and yet... Um, we get to explain it with words. Well, um, because it's a longer passage, I would like Anne Menard to read it for us. And if we can all stand, we do this not to be weird or ceremonious, but we do this to, to acknowledge that we're worshiping God, that his word is the only thing that's inerrant and inspired. So this is God's holy word. Anne, if you would. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. 
And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that, that deals with the tough topics of life, that challenges us, Lord. Thank you, God, for your word that reminds us that you are God and we are not. Thank you that your word humbles us, reminds us that we are creatures and you are our creator. But God, thank you for your word that gives us assurance and faith and hope and lets us know that we can trust in you because you are God. God, I pray for all of us this morning that you would give me grace to preach, that you would Fill me with your spirit that you would enable me to know what to say, what not to say. And Father, I pray for everybody here that you would help us all be attentive to your words, Lord, that we would wrestle with the hard words, that we would submit ourselves to you, that we would humble ourselves before you, God, and that we would receive from you. God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you encourage us? Would you give us your grace? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my friends, they adopted some children from Russia. They had been orphans for a while. They lived on the street for a long time. And then my friends found them in an orphanage. They wanted to display the loving father heart of God. They wanted to show mercy and kindness to these children. Not because they specifically deserved it in any way. But because they wanted to demonstrate what God's mercy, what God's love looked like. They wanted to rescue them. They wanted to choose to love them. And they chose to love them, not for any reason. They didn't think they were particularly cuter than any of the other kids. They just for some reason said, I, I want that one. I want that one. I want that one. They chose three kids, actually. And, and even though they hadn't known them beforehand, they chose to love them. And they did love them. They do love them. And they have a wonderful relationship. They wanted to rescue them. But you know, the children weren't sure The children weren't exactly sure that they could trust their parents. They had doubts because they'd been on the streets for a while. They wondered that these new parents could be trusted any more than all those who said they cared about them, yet misused them and abused them and mistreated them because that happened on the streets of Russia. I'm sad to say that this little three-year-old and five-year-old and seven-year-old were abused by adults on the streets. And they wondered, would these adults be any different? Would they be cared for? Would they be provided for? Would they love them really? Could they trust them? They didn't understand why they were chosen. They couldn't understand why others in their orphanage were not. They hoarded food in their closets to begin with. They weren't sure if their parents could be trusted. That's kind of the reaction sometimes that we have as adopted believers, we, we sometimes are unsure. We sometimes don't really know. Can we really trust God? Now, Scripture is replete with grounds for our ability to trust in God, for why we should trust in God. But the church in Rome, they were wrestling with some of the same ideas. They were wrestling with, hang on, Paul, you just told us about all this glorious truths in Romans 8 when you said that um, God's 
foreknew us and he's predestined us to be adopted and, and he's working in us and, and, he, and he's going to work all things, even bad things together for our good because we love him and, and he's called us according to his purposes. And yet you see that not all, not all of those who were called God's people, not all the Jews actually were were in his love. Some of the Jews were separated from his love. In fact, the majority of the Jews were separated from his love. And so some new Christians might have asked, and some of the Jews might have asked, well then, what does this mean? Can God really be trusted? If, if nothing can separate us, if the Jews are supposed to be God's people, how can it be that some might be separated? And so you see from this heights of Romans 8, the most, my, my favorite, most glorious chapter really in all of Scripture, and, and how it just resounds in worship and praise to God. And then Paul is immediately sad, as we saw last week. He's immediately sad because they've not come to know. Most of his countrymen have not come to know Jesus, and he longs for that. He, he wants them desperately to know Jesus. And now we see that he explains, but don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand things. Just because not all Jews have come to know Jesus, just because... The majority of Jews are separated from the love of Jesus does not mean that God's word has failed. But the Jews might have asked, the Gentiles might have asked, well, can we trust God? If God promised that the Jews would be his people, can we trust God if not all the Jews are God's people? Does that make sense? It's it's, it's an understandable question that Paul is anticipating and he's answering here. And so really he's asking, is the gospel inconsistent with God's promises to Israel? Can God be trusted Maybe you've had that question yourself. When you encounter things you don't understand, can God be trusted? Anybody here ever have the question, can God be trusted? It's a natural human response. Paul's answer here is yes, but not because we can figure him out. Yes, God can be trusted, but not because we can figure him out. Sometimes we try to put God in a box. We try to figure God out and he must fit our rules and our way of thinking and and we must be able to figure him out if we're going to to trust him. But God says, no, you'll never really be able to figure God out at least not fully, not on this side of glory. But we trust God because of who he is. We trust God because he's always faithful and he's always trust. He's not to be trusted because he's domesticated. God's not a pet. He's not to be trusted because we know all the reasons for him doing what he does. We will never know all of his reasons. But what Paul is telling us throughout this passage, see the primary purpose, this, this passage addresses some really hard topics, right? You might have heard this passage really nail election, but that's because it does. It talks about God softening the hearts of some and having mercy on some and God hardening others. Those are all hard topics, but you can't read them out of the context of this is really answering the broader question of can, can God be trusted if some of Israel, if most of Israel did not come to follow Jesus How is it that we can trust in God? And Paul's answer is you can trust in God because God is faithful and just and we won't be ashamed if we believe in him. That's really the main idea of of this whole passage is that God is faithful and just and we won't be ashamed of him if we put our faith in him. God's faithful. He says, no, God's promises haven't failed. He is just. He is not unjust like some may seem if you measure by human standards, but no, God is just. And not only that, God is faithful. He is just, not just and faithful just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And then, in the midst of his chapter on election, Paul began it with talking about how he longed that they all would be saved. Then he talks about election and hardening. But then he talks at the very end how if you put your hope in him, you won't be put to shame. 
So God is faithful and just, and we won't be ashamed if we believe in him. This passage is not meant to cause doubts. It's actually meant to reassure us. It's meant to reassure us. They're not cold. They're not calculating. They're not mechanical. You might have heard these truths taught in a really cold, calculated, mechanical way. But let's look at them again in the context. Look at the verse, five verses of Romans 9. Look down your Bibles. Paul, Paul he says, I, 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 I have a deep sorrow. I have unceasing anguish. Why? Because they've, they've not all responded. And I, will, I would that they all would respond. In fact, I, I would be accursed. I would, I would cut myself off from Jesus if I could because I so want them to respond. That's the heart that we see this glorious doctrines really being taught. These verses are grounded in love. And he says that although the very few Jews have come to faith in the gospel, he says it is not as if God has been unfaithful. It is not as if God's word has failed. And the first truth that helps us put our trust in God that we're going to see is that God is faithful to his promises. God's faithful to his promises. And he tells us that in verses 6 to 13. He's faithful to his promises. Now, I was thinking about how sometimes I will tell my children, you know, hey, kids, we're going to stay up tonight and we're going to play cards. And my kids love playing canasta. It's a family thing. I know it's an old people game, but it's a lot of fun. And, and so we play canasta and they have a great time. But say around 10 or 11 o'clock at night, I'm like, okay, kids, we're done. We're cutting it off. Well, often they'll say, but dad, you said we could stay up. I'm like, yeah, but I didn't mean like all night. You, you misunderstood me. There was, there was something lost in the translation. And, and if that can happen with children who actually compared, if you compare children to us, they are far closer in intellect than we compared to God, right? And so if, if, mis, if we misunderstand, we don't understand those things, I can bet that there's some things of God we don't understand. And in the Old Testament, there was this um, assumption that people made that every descendant, every physical descendant of Abraham would be saved. And that actually was not true, even from the Old Testament. That's what Paul is saying. He says it's a tragedy because they had this birthright. They had the patriarchs. They had the law. They had everything they need. And they, the Messiah came from the Jews. But yet they didn't respond. But he says it's not as if God's word has failed. People in that church were probably asking him, Paul, well, why do some of Abraham's children love Jesus while others don't? And he says, well, God's word doesn't, word doesn't fail because it was never about physical descent to begin with. It was never about physical descent to begin with. God's choosing of a people for himself was never and is never about physical descent. And so I thought it was really appropriate this morning that Sydney shared how she grew up in the church. But being in the church, growing up in a Christian home, it doesn't make you a believer, Growing up as the people of Israel does not make you one of God's people in the sense of true Israel, Paul says. He says, look down at verse 7. He says, not all children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. What Paul is saying is that it's not about physical descent. Now, if you think about this, he says, but through Isaac shall your descendants be named. Why does he do that? Because you remember who the first son of Abraham was? Anybody remember? Just go and shout it out. You can shout it louder. Ishmael. We're going to be a little interactive today, okay? So Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn son of Abraham. So it wasn't about physical descent, Paul says, because if it was, he was the firstborn son. No, it was always about the promise. It was about God's promise and how God would elect, how God would promise, how God would call. And so some Jews would say, yeah, but you know, Hagar, she was an Egyptian, so that's why. So Paul says, okay, well, let me tell you something else. It's not just Isaac and Ishmael, but you, 
God, he says, he had to, he had to intervene. He had to intervene. Um, look in verse 9. He says, this is what the promise said. About this time next year, and I will return. God, speaking of himself, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. What's God saying? It's his divine intervention that chose the offspring. Had God not intervened with this 90-year-old woman who was way past menopause, and I, I said menopause, I know it's okay. We can, we can talk about biological things. It's all right. She was way past the time of childbearing, and yet... God returned and she had a son. So divine intervention, God's electing promise that he brought about, that he carries out. That's what, that's what conceived the promise. And look down at verse 10. It says, not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So not only was it Sarah and Abraham, not only did God intervene to bring about his promises, but he says, Rebekah, it was the same, same thing. She had twins. That's why he says, by one man. Rebecca had twins, right? Jacob and Esau. And there was nothing differentiating them in the womb. Like one would be greater than the other. They were twins. They had the same DNA. They had the same father. They were conceived at the exact same time as what he's trying to say. The mother was an Egyptian. The father was an Egyptian. They were both had the same, born into the same circumstances, the same home, the same womb at the same time. Well, a few minutes earlier was Esau. So actually Esau would have been considered the firstborn son. And so... The firstborn son in those days would have been the one who would have had the right to receive the inheritance. And yet, before they were even born, God said to Rebecca, what? Look down your Bible. It says the older will serve the younger. Why? Because of God's choice, not because of anything. No one could object. There was no distinction. God's choice was based on his own prerogative alone. Alone had nothing to do who was firstborn or secondborn or how hairy Esau was or, or how clean-shaven you know, Jacob was. Contrary to what I think some people believe, you know, the facial hair is a sin or something. I, come on. Yeah, I mean, there, there, are, there are people who think that it's more godly to be clean shaven somehow, and that's, uh, that's absurd. There, there's nothing, any, anything that they could do, good or bad. And Paul drives the point home further. He reiterates it's God's choice, and he says, not by works, but it rests what? Solely on his call. Look at the verse, verse 11. Not because of works, but because of what? Last two words. Say it out loud. His call. You, you can say it loud on that. What, was it because of? His call. Absolutely. Not because of works, but because of his call. Before they were born, they hadn't done anything good or bad. Why? So that God's purpose of election. God wanted to demonstrate his purpose of electing love. That's why. God chose him so that he could show that, that his election, the purpose of election might stand. That's what he demonstrated. Now, people didn't get it, kind of like my children. They didn't get it necessarily what God was doing. But Paul's saying, not coming up with a new doctrine here. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's explaining God's calling has always been independent of works. It always has nothing to do with social convention or preferences. You know, the social convention that day would have made Esau the firstborn, and, and his dad tried, contrary to God's word, and yet it didn't happen. So the Apostle Paul, he calls another witness for those who are doubting, and he says, well, let me show you. The, this is really Old Testament truth. And he quotes from the prophet um, Malachi in, verses, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And in Malachi, the people are asking God if he loves them. And, and, and God says, I've loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. 
What's God saying? My love for you is proven in my choosing of you. That's how you know that I love you, that I've chosen you, that you've responded to me, that you've placed your faith in me. That's how you know that is proof that I loved you, that I've called you, that I've chosen you. I don't read too much word into the, into the word for hate there. It, is, it does mean not loved. It does mean hate in the sense of a Semitic sense, but it's not as in this seething anger. But it does mean disregarded or not loved. I think it's the same sense when Jesus, and he tells his disciples that in, in Luke 14, 26, says, if anyone would follow after me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, did not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does he mean? Does that mean you're, you're actively hating your wife? No, no, because so much scripture teaches us to love husbands, love your wives, because that's what normally we're most deficient in. Fathers, don't exasperate your children by being unloving to them. No, he's not saying actually hate your father and mother and wife. But he said, in comparison to me, don't love them more than me. So in reverse, God's saying, I, I love Jacob more than Esau in a different way than Esau. Esau I do not love, but Jacob I've loved. And that's a hard word. God chose Jacob above Esau based on his own choosing. It says that his purpose of election might stand. Not because of anything they've done, good or bad. Not because of any works. And the only reason Jacob was chosen because of God's grace. Now, that, that, that can be something hard. But you know what? Without this truth of God's electing grace, you, you really miss the central teaching of the whole Bible that we're saved by grace alone. But if you start from this perspective that... that any of us are somehow deserving, it's understandable why we might question whether or not God's choice is fair and just. You know, if we're thinking, well, I, I'm pretty good, I'm, I'm deserving, then you might think that God's decision is, is unjust, right? Well, if, if you think that any human has any deserving, you, you might be tempted. Most of us, when we first read or heard this truth, we, we probably asked something along the lines, if God only chooses some and not others, is God unfair? I know I did. I wrestled with this truth for a long time. And, and, and I realized for me, the reason I wrestled was because I was proud and I wanted to have some part in my salvation. I wanted to have some part in my own salvation. So Paul anticipates this question in verse 14 and he tackles it head on. And the second truth we're going to see from this passage of why we can trust God is that God is just with the Israelites. He was faithful with the Israelites. He's just with the Israelites. We can see that in verses 14 to 18. He says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice with God on God's part? And then he answers the question, by no means. You know, the Bible doesn't avoid tough questions. It doesn't always give us the answers we like, but it doesn't avoid them. And Paul's anticipating this question because why? Because Paul knows our desire, the desire of every human heart, is to have some part, to take some credit for our salvation in some way have worth on our own apart from God. It doesn't avoid these hard questions and it doesn't avoid uncomfortable answers either. But you know what? God doesn't pander to human sensibilities. He doesn't feel the need to explain himself. First, his first answer, Paul's first answer is, by no means is there any injustice on God's part. By no means. Because how dare us as humans to, to think that we can stand in the place of judge over God, is what Paul's saying. By no means. And it's not really a question of justice either. 
is what verse 15 tells us. Look at verse 15. He says, it's kind of an interesting way of answering the question. Is there injustice with God? And all of a sudden, he, he quotes Moses, right? Look in verse 15. He says, he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Well, Paul, what in the world does that have anything to do with it? What Paul is saying is it has nothing to do with justice. It's not a question of justice. You're asking the wrong question. It's a question of mercy. It's a question of mercy. You see, justice would mean that no one would be chosen. Justice would mean that no one would receive mercy or compassion. That would be justice. That's why Paul answers it that way. He said, by no means is it injustice. It's all about mercy. And you might balk at the idea of God choosing someone others. You might say, it's injustice. But justice would mean God choosing no one. Because as we've read in Romans so far and seen in the whole Bible, there is no one is righteous. No, not how many? No, not one. No one understands No one seeks God. There's no one righteous. And so instead of a question of justice, Paul says, it's the wrong question. It's a question of mercy and compassion. And Paul's quoting Exodus 33, 19, where Moses has asked God to show him his glory. The people have sinned. They have worshipped. They made a calf of their own making. They've bowed down. They worshipped him. Moses has tried to intercede for them. And God says, no, I'm going to punish who I will. I'm going to have mercy on whom I will. And then Moses says, show me your glory. And God shows him his glory. And then he declares his very character and nature that he is free from being obligated to Moses or anyone. And here's what he says in response to Moses. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, meaning I am a completely free agent and I am not responsible to you. He's not obligated to show any of us mercy or compassion. In fact, his character, if you were to take away his mercy and his compassion and his kindness, his holiness requires, requires that we receive wrath. Before we go any further, though, I want to stop and think about mercy. Mercy is by very definition undeserved. Mercy is by very definition undeserved. It's never owed. Because then it's not mercy if it's owed. It's duty. Mercy is free. It has nothing to do with obligation. God's not obligated to show mercy. He's just. But it's not a question of justice. It's a question of mercy and compassion. And that's why we can trust God. God saves sinners not on the basis of justice at all, but on the basis of his mercy. In Romans, Paul spent the first three chapters showing that mankind was completely deserving of wrath. And, it's, it, and, he, and he said in, in the first and second chapter that, that we have no excuse. It's not like we have the excuse that we didn't know better. He says, even all of creation demonstrates who God is, and yet you're without excuse, O oh man. You've neither acknowledged him as God and you failed to give thanks to him. We're all without excuse. We're all rebels. We all deny God. We all refuse to worship him on our own. And so we we really ought not to ask questions of justice. Because if we're honest, none of us wants justice. There's no degrees of righteousness. I loved what Sydney said this morning as she realized that, um, you know, being proud or being envious, or whatever, I can't remember the exact sin she mentioned, that it was just as bad, because what all sins deserve? Death, right? You said that, I think, right? All sins deserve death. There's no degrees of righteousness. So, really what the Scripture is saying to us, how dare we accuse God of injustice? 
when his election is evidence of his mercy, his undeserved mercy and grace. That God would give any undeserved mercy and grace should astound us. If you find yourself feeling like you somehow deserve mercy and grace, you don't understand mercy and grace. The effect of that is meant for us to trust in God if you've been a recipient of his mercy and his grace. If you've responded to him, if you've seen his mercy, if you've seen his grace, say, God, I want to believe in you, I want to trust in you, then guess what? You've received his mercy and grace. If you've repented and believed in him, and that should humble us. That's where hope is in the mercy and compassion of God. Look in verse 16. What does God's mercy depend on? He tells us in verse 16. It doesn't depend on somebody looking better than somebody else, somebody having some kind of inherent merit. Look down at verse 16. This is the Bible. It says, so then it depends not on what? Not on human will. It doesn't depend on on our choice or our desires or our will. Mercy doesn't depend on human will. It doesn't depend on your choice. Or, what's the next word? It says exertion or work or effort. It doesn't depend on your willing or your working. It doesn't depend on your desires or your efforts, but it depends on God who has mercy. I read an illustration from a guy named Tim Keller. He has a book called Romans for You. If you don't have it, I think we have some copies out on the book table. It's a great way to help understand different passages in Romans. He shares the illustration of somebody choosing. There was a lady who went to uh, Delhi, India, and she chose to give some children there scholarships. She was a, a multimillionaire. She chose to give them scholarships, and she had lots of money, but she chose a group of 20 kids, and she gave them scholarships to go through all through college and then through grad school. But she didn't choose them based on their merit. She showed them mercy. And it would be merciful even if she had the means to choose more but did not choose them for her own reasons. She, maybe she had more money and she could choose more kids, but she didn't. But the kids she chose, it was still mercy on them. Since she was merciful, no one could, could accuse her of, of being unfair. The people she showed mercy to, she really showed mercy to. It wasn't unfair that she did that. It was merciful. God's choice to have mercy is not dependent on our willing, our desires, or our choosing. But he chooses to have mercy and compassion based on his own nature and character alone. And his choice to have mercy and compassion is it's self-initiated. Now that's comforting if you've heard this truth. And if it creates a desire, God, I want to know your mercy. If it creates a desire for you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and you have repented and you desire to repent and believe and place your faith on him, then you can be sure that you're a recipient of his mercy and that is meant to be comforting because that means that he has chosen you. It's meant to be humbling. It's never meant for us to try to figure out who's chosen, who's not. That's ridiculous. This verse, these verses really weren't meant to answer that question. It was meant to answer, can we really trust God? Can we depend on him? Yes, he's faithful and he's just. He's faithful, he's merciful, he's compassionate. It means that we can know that when we weren't searching for God, when we didn't choose to follow God as we should, it didn't change the desire to show us mercy and compassion. That's why it's comforting and that's why it's humbling. Anybody here ever have weak desires? You ever desire weakly? You ever desire God weakly? I mean, too weak or insufficiently? You can raise your hand. Anybody have insufficient desires of God? I know every day, mine kind of go up and down. I'm like, this is going to be a great day. I'm going to like have a wonderful time with God. Something bad happens, and I'm like, this day sucks. 
When our desires are weak, it doesn't mitigate God's compassion towards us. That's why we can trust God. When we don't make enough effort, when our works and actions, they fail to meet his holy, righteous requirements, we can be sure that he shows us mercy independent of our behavior. We can be certain if we've repented to believe that, that we've received his mercy and no lack, listen to this, no lack in us can thwart his mercy and compassion. Sydney, you have chosen God. No lack in you. You're going to be tempted later on when you are doubting, when you have problems, when you see that you sin. You're going to be tempted to think that maybe I really didn't believe. Maybe I really, I'm not a Christian. Like all of us here are tempted at times. And yet in those times we can say, no, I can be sure if I've received and responded to his mercy, I have been chosen by him and I am, I am sure no matter what I feel. And it's humbling because it means there's nothing in us that calls God to have mercy and compassion to us. We're completely dependent. And you know what Paul said earlier? He says, no room for boasting. So that no one may boast. We can't take credit for being good enough or lovable enough or wise enough or willing enough or, or working enough. It's comforting, it's humbling, and it makes us confident in him, not in ourselves. And it frees us up to not have to think that God's, God's acceptance of us has anything to do with his, our performance. Maybe you're caught in that lifestyle here. And by, by the way, maybe you are currently caught in that lifestyle of feeling like your performance is what earns God's favor towards you. And this passage is actually meant to assure you, no, it has nothing to do with your performance. That doesn't mean you're free to do whatever you want. What it means is God was so merciful to you. Don't, don't thwart his mercy. Don't thumb your nose in God and act as if his mercy didn't mean anything. That gives us a desire to follow God. He's not fickle. He's constant. He's the only reliable one in the universe, and we can confidently trust his mercy and compassion. We can't trust our own feelings. We can't trust our own even intellect, but we can trust who God is because he's faithful and he's just, and he's merciful. Look down at verse 17 and 18. It says, Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, so I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul doesn't back away from that. He says, no, not only that, God chooses to have mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. He's the one who has power over kings and nations. That's why he brings up Pharaoh. Pharaoh at the time when, when the people of Israel were in the Exodus, he was the most powerful king in all the earth at that time. And, and God says, I raised him up. Pharaoh might have thought that he became king on his own merit or through birth or whatever, but I raised him up and I raised him up for a specific purpose. And he says, for this very purpose I raised you up. Why? So God could demonstrate his power. And so that God's name might be proclaimed. So God chose to raise him up and God chose to hearten him is what he's saying. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but in Exodus we read that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But you know what? Left to ourselves, all of us are hardened towards God. It's not like God created the hardening. He talks about how if God does not intervene in Romans 1 and 2, then, then left to ourselves, we naturally would be hardened anyway. And so God hardens, though, and he has mercy on some. And because of this mercy, that's not a question of justice. Had Pharaoh not resisted God, the mighty power of God would not have been revealed in the same way, is what he's saying. 
You know, all the different plagues. In each way, they all demonstrated the power of God in a unique way that would not have been demonstrated. And that's what God's saying in, in the mystery of God. God who knows all, who, who actually understands what is best, says, you know what? I'm going to harden Pharaoh, and he's going to be a vessel of wrath. Why? So that I can show my glory in a way it would never be seen otherwise. And that people would not respond to me otherwise and would not repent and place their faith and trust in me. All the plagues and parting of the Red Sea and showing his ability to wipe out the world's most powerful army. The result of Pharaoh being raised up and resisting God than being defeated by God was to show God's power is even greater. That should humble us. But we can see that we can trust God. We can trust his choice. We can trust his mercy. We can trust his grace. Why? Because all those, as we'll find out. And, and by the way, that not chapter 9, 10, and 11, they all hang together. Paul is answering this question. So chapter 9, it hits election and, and hardening, and those issues really hard. But then in chapter 10, we're going to see next week that we actually have responsibility in that. And the Scripture doesn't try to downplay either one of those things. You know, in our minds, we're like, but those don't seem logically compatible. We don't have time to go into compatibilism and how God's sovereignty and human responsibility, they stand together, and yet ultimately God is sovereign. We embrace scripture because both are true. Both are true. God is sovereign completely overall. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He must have mercy and choose us in order for us to respond to him, but we must respond, and it's a real response. And he says here, in a sense, Israel's partial hardening, it led to God's name being proclaimed in all the earth through the, the, the Gentiles receiving the gospel. And then in chapter 11, we're going to see that actually that last day generation of the Israelites, not those who have turned aside, turned away from Jesus, but in the last day, God's actually going to bring all of the current generation of Israelites to him. And we'll see that in a few weeks. Some might say, well, if, if I harden my heart towards God or resist God, isn't that really his fault? You ever have that question? If you're a thinking, honest individual, I, I hope you've had that question. Wait a minute, if I harden my heart towards God, and God says that he hardens my heart, then, then am I really responsible? Isn't that God's fault? Well, Paul's not clueless. He understands that. And he answers it in verses 19 to 29. He explains the third truth that's key for us to trust God, and it's that God is just towards all people. God is just towards all people. The Bible doesn't avoid hard topics. No, it, it hits them head on. It says, I, I get that you're asking this. He says, look in verse 19. He says, you'll say to me, then why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And then the next chapter, Paul's going to explain that God won't turn away from any who believe in him and call in his name. And to, in the end of this chapter, he says as well that all who believe in him won't be put to shame. The answer is not why does God find fault? It's that if you, do you really want to believe? Do you really want to harden your heart? If you're already blaming God that your heart's hard because he's hardened it, then you don't want to follow God to begin with. Paul explains, yes, God chooses his children first, and, and yes, it's his choice that comes before a response and enables us to respond to him and understandably raises that question that if God must choose and he's the one who either hardens whomever he wills or has mercy on the wills, then how are we responsible? But after all, no one can resist God's will. But, but the answer that God gives, look, look down your Bibles in verse 20. It's to, it's to explain what the definition of justice means. 
He answers, well, why do I still find fault? Look in, look in verse 20. He says, but who are you, O man? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What's he doing there? He's saying, you, who are you, you finite human being? You who are but a breath, but a vapor. You who are here 80 years, 90, 120 at most. Who are you to say to the infinite creator and answer back to him and, and call him to account? No, God calls you to account. That's what he's saying. God, you can't find fault with God, but you can't say, will I respond to God? That's for us to, to answer. Will I believe in God? Will I soften my heart? Will I respond to God? He doesn't will, it says in other places in Scripture, he's not unloving. This isn't cold calculating. He doesn't will that any would perish, but that all would come to a knowledge and faith in him. But look what he says. But who are you to answer, oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? It's kind of an absurd picture, right? Picture this piece of clay, and he's going to get this in a second, but he says, well, what is molded? So you've got a vase sitting there on the shelf. Now, obviously, we're not inanimate objects. We are thinking individuals, but it's just as absurd as what he's saying is that you have this vase, and the vase is sitting there on the shelf, and finally this vase pipes up and says, hey, why'd you make me like this? It's kind of an absurd question to begin with, because I wanted to, because you were mine to make. God's answer is not to try to explain himself to man as if God's responsible to give account. Instead, God reminds mankind of their place and says, who are to answer back? God's the creator. is the right to do whatever he wills with his own creation. Remember back in Job 40 when at the end of Job, he has wrestled trying to figure out what's going on. The end of, end of Job, he doesn't actually have all the answers. And God's answer to Job was that Job had no right or ability to find fault with the Almighty. Job had no right to put God in the wrong or condemn God that he might be in the right we see the same thing in Isaiah 29, 16. I think we have it from the overheads. He says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? You know, you're going you're gonna to make God the one who you mold into your image? And, and that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? The idea that the creator may do whatever he wishes with his creation is nothing new for the Jewish people still applies today. We have no right or ability to stand in judgment over God. He's our judge. Look in verse 21. It says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and one for another for dishonorable use? Doesn't the potter have a right to create a, a, a vase for holding flowers and a pot for being a bedchamber? It doesn't mean that we're unthinking clay pots, but he's using knowledge saying that God has a right. He's the creator. He's the one who made us and formed us. Then look in verse 22. He says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his powers endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy we prepared beforehand. Like with Pharaoh, God endured Pharaoh's resistance to his will precisely in order to make known how great his glory is for vessels of mercy. And as a vessel of mercy, if you're hearing this this morning, God's appealing to you to repent, to believe, place your faith and your trust in him so that he might show you his mercy. But notice this is God endures with patience vessels of wrath. 
I think a good argument can be made that his patience with vessels of wrath intended to bring them to repentance. And I think an example of that is in 1 Timothy 1.16 when Paul, he's, he's speaking of his own conversion. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost sinner he's talking about, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God's patient with vessels of wrath and God bears with all evil people. He doesn't make evil people and he wants all people to come to know him. That's his, his desiring love. Not in his electing love, he doesn't choose all. That's a mystery, we don't understand that. But, but for us, it's not to try to figure that out. It's saying, God, thank you. I want to come to you. You know, I, I'm thinking about the illustration. Imagine that my son goes out with a group of his teenage friends. I'm like my, my nephew did. Now, thankfully, none of them got hurt. But say my son went out with a group of his teenage friends to a, um, a what do you call those things where they dig out on a, a pit? Um, we dig out ore and rocks, a uh, quarry. There we go. I went to a quarry, and to the quarry, it was a 100-foot-tall cliff, and they all said, hey, we're going to go jump off that, that cliff, even though all the warning signs say danger, rocks at the bottom. And so they all get to go there. I find out about it. I, I race to meet them. I implore, I, I implore them. I plead with them. say, please stop. Please don't do that. But I can't make them because I'm not their dad, and I don't have the police there. But yet I, I physically run. I jump. I tackle my son, and I restrain him while the others all jump off the cliff. Well, imagine then that they all perish. They all die. They die, and it was their fault. They knew better. They were warned. They chose. Their death was their fault. And yet it wasn't, at the same time, to the credit of my son, that he was stopped from death. It was because I was merciful, and I arrested him. I stopped him. And it was to my credit that he lived. Same is true of us and God. God pleads for us. He doesn't want us to go off the cliff. He doesn't want us to go our own way. And yet, he stops some and it's to his credit that he shows us mercy. Even us, look in verse 24, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. Even us, whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles? And then verse 25 says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And who, who was not beloved, I will call beloved. What's he, what's he quoting from? He's quoting from the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, God had Hosea marry a prostitute. Seems shocking. Not because that's the model for us today, but because God wanted to demonstrate his mercy to those who weren't deserving. His choosing of the unlovely. And so even in the very choice of Hosea, and Paul's quoting from Hosea, Hosea chose his wife Gomer. And by the way, that was a female name back then. Don't get sidetracked by that. But Gomer ran astray. She strayed from home. After they had a first child together, she strayed from home. The second child she bore wasn't fathered by Hosea, and everybody in town knew it. And so Hosea named her Lorohama, which means unpitied or unloved. Sounds like a harsh name. Because she didn't deserve pity or love from him. And God had him do that. And so again, Gomer was unfaithful. She conceived a second child, and it wasn't Hosea's again. And so he names the second child Loami, which means not my people. So you see what Paul's quoting here? Not loved, 
not my people. You might think terrible names, but God had Hosea love these children as his own anyway and to make them full members of his household to demonstrate a principle about God's character and nature towards unfaithful people. You see, it's in God's nature, much more than Hosea. It's in God's nature. No peer of Hosea would have expected him to choose these children as his own and love them. And that day, it would have been seen as scandalous. What he should have done in that day and age, according to those laws, was to be put out his wife, the prostitute, and, 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 and to sell his children into slavery. And he, did, he doesn't do that. He didn't do that. He loved them like his own. The principle that God is showing is that he takes those who are not deserving, not my people, and he makes them my people. Not loved, not beloved, and he makes them loved. All of us were not beloved. All of us were not his people. If you're here this morning, you were once not his people. You were once not loved. You had no reason for God to pity you. You had no reason for him to love you. You had no reason for him to choose you. But here's the wonderful mystery He says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And those who are not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And when Hosea did that, it magnified his grace and mercy. When God chooses us, when he makes us alive in him, when he shows us his mercy, when he showers us with his love, and he calls us his people, it's meant to magnify his grace. And that's what Paul's saying. And we can trust in God because God's the kind of God who takes people who aren't his own and makes them his people. We can trust in God because God's the kind of God who makes people who are unlovely and makes them loved. And then in verse 26, it says, in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they will be called, not only my people, they'll be called sons of the living God. Not only does God make you a people and love you, he chooses to make you his sons and daughters. And then he explains God's purposes in Israel have not failed. Look down at verse 27. He says, It was always God's plan to call those outside the nation of Israel to be sons of the living God. And he says, way back in Isaiah, what's Paul doing? He says, back in Isaiah, you can trust God because God always knew he was going to do this. God always chose to do this. God always explained he was going to do this. You misunderstood from the very beginning. And Paul says, quoting Isaiah again, he's, he's building evidence. He says, as Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only what? Only a remnant of them will be saved. No, God's purposes have not failed. No, God's plans have not failed. And look in verse 29. It says, Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. We would have been wiped out completely if God had not left us offspring. God's purposes haven't failed. He keeps his promises. But yet he always has rejected those who feel like they are deserving. And he's always shown mercy to the undeserving. And the glorious truth as to why we can trust God. This last truth we're to look at in verse 30 to 33. Why we can trust God? Because he says we won't be ashamed if we believe in him. We won't be ashamed if we believe in him. How can we be sure we're saved? How in the world do Gentile people who are not God's people receive righteousness? Paul says, you receive it by faith. This doctrine of election, it's it's not contrary to. That's what we sang this morning, I've decided to follow Jesus. Yes, it's not contrary to our decision. 
And here's the thing, what we need to wrestle with most is, is not who's God elect, who's not God elect. No, it's if we, if we have a desire to respond. If you're experiencing conviction right now, then God is calling you to respond to him. Will you have faith in him? And if you have placed your faith in him, you can be sure he's called you. It doesn't mean it was pointless for Israel to pursue the law. The problem wasn't the law. But Israel did not pursue the laws by faith, is what it says in verse 32. They stumbled over the stumbling stone of Jesus, the Messiah, They thought keeping the law justified them. They thought keeping the law was to be the means to receive God's promises. And and God says, no, keeping the law was always meant only to be an act of faith. Even today, our obedience as Christians is not earnest righteousness, but it's an act of faith. God, I trust you, and so I'm going to obey you. God, this is really difficult, and God, I really want to smoke pot right now, but you know what, God, I'm going to say no because I trust you and I love you. God, I really want to look at pornography right now, but you know what, Lord, I'm going to say I trust you and I have faith in you that you are better than those things, and so, God, I'm going to say no to those things. God, I I want to punish people who've been mean to me, but you know what, God, I'm going to say no to that because I trust that you, Lord, will take care of me. When you're tempted to sin, your obedience is an act of faith in God in response to his mercy, in response to his grace. And it's a response saying, God, I trust in you, so I'm going to obey you. Look in verse 33. It says, and behold, I'm laying a Zion, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. And whoever believes, listen to this. This is right following the election, the same very passage. He says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the question we're left with is not who's elected, who's not. It's no. Will we believe in him? If so, you won't be put into shame and you can be sure you've been elected. God's had mercy on you. So while it's true that he's only elected some, it's true that the reason that some didn't receive the righteousness of God is that they did not place their faith in God and tried to earn righteousness through works. So how will we respond to all this? I think there's one of the four ways, four primary ways we can respond in closing. How should we respond? Well, I, I think it's meant to humble us by his election of us at all. It depends on God's calling, and we can't take any credit. If he didn't call us, we would not be saved, and we have no room for boasting. So let us all be humble. Don't think that somehow there's something special about you, that's why God chose you. No, let it humble you. Secondly, we, we, we need to be grateful. We're grateful for his mercy towards us. Are you grateful? Do you realize you did not receive mercy and yet, oh, I've received mercy. I was once unloved, but now I'm loved. I was once not as people, but now I'm as people. I once didn't know his compassion and his kindness, but I know his compassion and kindness. Why? The question for us is not, why does God not choose some? The question is, why does God choose any? Why did God choose us? We're undeserving, yet God showed us mercy that should lead to worship. And then, thirdly, we should be silent before his sovereignty. Who are you, O man? You're clay. We acknowledge that we're finite. We don't understand his infinite ways, and yet we acknowledge that he has a right over us, a God. And so let us worship him and revel in him and also trust in his sovereignty. Because this is just on the heels, there's no chapter divisions, this is just on the heels of Romans 8, which began this glorious chapter, which said what? That God works what kinds of things? All things together for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, those he's predestined. Oh, so we can, we can say, thank you, God, that you have chosen me, that you're going to work whatever crummy things happen in my life 
you have a rock to stand on. This, this stumbling stone for the Jews is a, is a stone for us to stand on, a rock that we can take confidence in his sovereignty no matter what storms might rage. And then lastly, verses 30 to 33, the implication is that we're committed to the cause of the gospel. Everyone who believes in him won't be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him won't be put to shame. Go ahead and the band come up and just for a couple minutes we're gonna sing that song, Jesus, Thank You. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. We are grateful for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The picture of baptism is a wonderful picture where we have already been born again. We've already placed our faith, and so it's an outward sign of what's already happened, that we've already been cleansed from all of our sins when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. You don't have to wonder when it's going to happen. Not even performance of baptism doesn't make you clean, but it's a demonstration, an acknowledgement that, God, you have already made me clean, and so, God, I'm going to demonstrate this publicly. And I love that picture. We are grateful for the death and resurrection of Jesus that's made us alive. And in response, we want all people. Don't you, like Paul, as he began this chapter, as we talked about last week, don't you want to see other people know God's mercy? And now in chapter 10, we're going to see that how, how are they know there's no good news? They only know the good news if, if we go and preach it. So if you're hearing this, assume this morning, if you're here, It's because God sovereignly wants you to respond. He wants you to trust in him. He wants you to receive mercy and he won't be put to shame. Let's stand and sing.